Hey, this is Eve Padgett, and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 208. The RV Entrepreneur is a podcast for nomadic entrepreneurs, and today I have kind of a unique, well, it really is a unique skill set and career path that I haven't had on the show really ever. Today on the episode, I'm going to be sharing Krista's story. Krista's been knitting for years. After graduating college, she started teaching knitting classes at local yarn shops. And one day while she was working from home, knitting while watching TV shows about travel, she realized she can knit from anywhere. So she decided to convince her husband to retire early and travel the country with her while she knits. When most knitters get started, they immediately go to a platform like Etsy where they want to start and grow their business. But everything on Etsy is very underpriced, as Krista talks about in this episode. You might see a scarf that she knows the yarn costs $7 and they're selling it for $8. So it can just a lot of times be a race to the bottom in a marketplace like Etsy. And ultimately, to kind of have the lifestyle that she wanted on the road, there was no margins there. And as she was trying to brainstorm and think about ways that she could marry this idea of travel and her passion for knitting, a friend sent her a Craigslist listing. Krista read the listing and then she reached out to the costume designer who had posted it. And as it turns out, they were looking for a hand knit piece for a little movie called The Hunger Games. This opened Krista's eyes to a whole need in Hollywood for quality hand knit costumes. Soon after this, Krista saw an email for a conference for stylists. She had no interest in styling, but knew that if she paid the $350 to attend the conference, she could get her card into the hands of some serious costume designers. In this episode, we dive into Krista's story and how she has been able to make custom knit costumes for major TV shows and movies in Hollywood. We talk about everything from how to follow up with potential clients, how custom costuming works, why knitting can be actually a really high stress job, how she communicates updates with costume designers to get swatches and feedback on prices, how she quotes prices for pieces and deals with new customers who don't want to pay her fair rate, and the crazy range of prices that she's actually been paid for a single sweater. While this episode really dives into a world that I know very little about as re <laughs> in regards to knitting for TV shows and movies, my takeaways from this episode were really about Krista's passion for taking a risk early on and going after what she wants and ultimately getting your services in front of the right people who are willing to pay a quality rate for them. Before we get into Krista's episode, a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by ID Plans, and it's actually less of a sponsorship than it is really an opportunity. ID Plans is a software and service company based in Tampa, Florida, that provides solutions for property managers. Over the past 20 years, ID Plans has been able to hire a number of full-time RVers to help survey commercial properties, and they are looking to hire three to five additional teams over the next couple months. Here's a clip from Carolyn, who has been traveling with her husband across the country working with ID Plans. Me and my husband have been traveling full-time together since 2016. The whole time we've been on the road, we were always looking for a job to do something along the way to make some money, but still be able to have our freedom. We tried several different work camping positions, and we realized that that was not a good way to make money. It was a great way to meet people, but the money was just not there. So we stumbled across ID Plans about a year and a half ago. And since we've worked for the company, it has changed our lives. We love working for ID Plans. We get to set our own schedule and we get paid to travel across the U.S. It's such a great opportunity. 
Over the last few years, I've seen a lot of companies hire RVers for different types of short and longer term jobs. And I can honestly say that this is one that almost immediately after getting trained, you can make a near full-time income while also still having another side hustle or business to do on the road. You'll receive training for their software, be able to park your RV right on the job sites and run the entire operation from your RV. If you want to learn more, you can send an email to rvjobs at idplans.com. That is rvjobs at idplans.com. All right, let's get into today's episode with Krista. Krista, what's up? Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, Heath. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, definitely a long time uh, listener, first time caller. <laughs> first time caller. Yeah, <laughs> dude, right. I guess uh, that still works. I, you know, I honestly sometimes wish I did a live show so I could take callers. That would be really cool, I think. Um, oh, no, I would definitely want to be able to edit out stuff for sure. <laughs> I think that's true, but at the same time, trying to I've done live stuff where I've been on video or audio with other RVers and I feel like you're just asking for a lot of stress problems to do a live show with two different parties of people who typically it's a stretch if you're getting like 10 megs down for internet oh yeah for sure <laughs> yeah absolutely and there's stuff that just goes wrong I mean we were the other night like heard like people like yelling at each other it was like a big fight going on in the RV next to us and we're like sitting there trying to listen to figure out what's going on so yeah that that's and then you're gonna get dogs barking and stuff you, you gotta you gotta be able to edit <laughs> <laughs> it is funny though in some ways because when I first heard the podcast I was so self-conscious about Every, you know, every time I started, I swear, like a mower at the campground would come by or a dog would bark and I would apologize profusely. And after a year, somebody was like, Keith, just quit apologizing for like, we know you're recording in an RV park, but I agree. Don't push your luck. There's nothing wrong with being able to edit out people yelling in the RV next to you. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. <laughs> so Krista, we've talked on Instagram before. <laughs> We're Instagram friends. Yep. And I, I'm so excited to be able to dig into your business because it's super unique and it's fun to talk to people who have a physical product that they're making while on the road. So I'm excited to be able to dig into that. But kind of as a starting point to give a little bit of context to your story, can you share uh, when this whole idea came about to move into an RV and what was going on in your life during that time? Yeah, so uh, we lived in Los Angeles, uh, my husband and I and our cat, and um, had been there, we, we ended up leaving after 20 years of being there, so we'd been there for a long time, and I had gone to school to be a teacher, uh, an elementary school teacher, and uh, that sort of just didn't end up being what I wanted it to be, and kind of got into the knitting side of things, and I, it was a lot of time of me sitting on the couch at home while my husband and I went off to work watching shows about travel and like in my pajamas working and realizing that like I could do this from anywhere and we were paying mortgage on a, a big house that uh, was way too big for us we loved it we loved our neighborhood and everything but it was just it was me just sitting there for day after day knitting in a couch watching about other people's adventures and I've always you know I grew up RVing uh, our family had an RV and so camping for us was something that I was very familiar with my husband has never had never been in an RV before and so I kind of brought it up to him and he sort of, I think he kind of sort of lasted off like one of my crazy ideas as I often get. And then I started bugging him about it a little bit more. I started doing research and I came across your podcast and I realized that like this was not only doable, but it wasn't totally crazy. And so it became a, a few years of sort of just just needling at my husband to uh, accept this and sort of start to... <laughs> 
accept that this was going to kind of where we were headed. He loved his job. He had a job that he absolutely loved. And it ended up getting to a point where he was like, I told him, I said, all right, look, here's the deal. You can retire at 49 and travel the country and go out on international stuff, or we can stay in Los Angeles and pay a mortgage and uh, not really do a whole lot of traveling. And he sort of thought about that. And he's like, I can retire at 49. I'm like, yeah, because I can still work on the road and our expenses are going to be a lot less. And so that, that was the center. That, that was the one that got him. We packed everything up. We bought an RV. And about a year later, we were able to make the full transition and, and leave Los Angeles. That is an interesting premise. And it's a little bit of a different conversation than quite a few people have had on this podcast. Because a lot of people are, well, everyone's at a different kind of stage in life. And I think the kind of core values for this show has been figuring out how you can merge a bunch of things you enjoy doing, a business that you enjoy, travel, all that kind of spending time with people that you want to be around as you travel and stuff. But I love the premise of, hey, we have a lot of overhead can we just cut off this like last six or five years of working and, you know, just be able to go and do this early. And I think that's really interesting because that's actually makes this feel a lot more accessible for many people versus saying like, I'm going to go do this right now at when I'm 30 or whatever, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was definitely one of those things where, we could have waited a lot, you know, a lot longer, waited more years and waited till he got closer to actual retirement age. But um, it, it just why, why yeah, there's so much in this country to see, I mean, and in this world, but you know, as far as our being in this country, there's so much to see. And why would we want to just sit there and wait and maybe eventually get to it? It's like, no, let's just do it today. So you guys hit the road in August of last year. And yes, and, and, has he felt like that was a good decision? Oh, he loves it. Yeah, I, I am very lucky that he <laughs> has fully. Well, one of the things is he loves to play like cards, like at casinos and stuff, uh, table games. He's not like a slot player, but he likes to play poker and blackjack and craps and all that stuff. And uh, so when I'm sort of making our travel plans, I hit up as many casinos as we can because he's collecting a $1 chip from every casino we go to. And uh, so he gets to go and experience these casinos. That's that's now I like to go to yarn shops. That's my thing. But uh, so that's kind of Two been my, my little yeah, my dropping <laughs> little breadcrumbs of all right, let's go to the next place. And uh, so he's getting to enjoy and experience all these casinos from all over the country. I love that. That's awesome. It's it's fun to hear about everyone's little interesting passions that they're able to interweave into RV life. Mm -hmm. We have friends, Ken and April, and they love craft beer. And so their whole thing is like hitting up different craft breweries across the country. And yep. you like yarn shops. And what do I like? I like wineries. I, but everyone has like these little niche things that they enjoy doing. And it's like, hey, let's just go hit up all these casinos. I never, yeah, that's super cool. And a lot of casinos will let you park right outside. Like we stayed at quite a few. Have you guys found that as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we definitely I look up on, um, you know, online to see if we can camp there for how many nights. And uh, yeah, I definitely love being able to, to camp out in front of casinos. We spent a lot of time in those parking lots. <laughs> nice. So your business is called I, I know your Instagram is Nitsy Nits. Is that the same? Is that the name of your business as well? Yeah, so I'm doing a little bit of a transition. Nitsy Nits is the brand, but um, I'm actually doing a huge blog, blog relaunch and doing Explore with Nitsy because I found that like talking about knitting all the time hasn't really been my passion. I've really gotten into photography and of course all the travel. 
And so I'm working with a web designer right now and we're relaunching to do Explore with Knitsy, which is still the knitting, but it's also, you know, local yarn shop reviews and taco stand reviews and photography and things like that. So it's going to be a little bit of a broader, more lifestyle brand. I like it. And your business is so unique and I never heard of this, but I I guess there's so many different niche industries in LA that serve TV and media that I would have never thought. And one of the niches that you've been able to to carve out has been knitting different items that go into TV shows. Uh, Can you kind of share like a high level, like when somebody meets you and asks like, what do you do for work? Like, how do you describe that? Yeah, it's always a funny thing. I know I do not have my elevator pitch down at all. <laughs> I don't either, uh, but, but yeah, I ask other like, people theirs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I have to be work- careful how I word things because the, what I want to say is I live in a trailer and I knit. And that just has a really weird sound to it if you like don't look at it from the perspective of, well, I live in an RV, which is a travel trailer, but it's an RV. And, um, and I do knit, but it is it is very high stress for sure knitting um for for deadlines for the the hollywood industry got it yeah it it is kind of fun to just drop it at i mean you can use i find that with elevator pitches it depends on the crowd right if somebody's asking mm-hmm. you and they you can tell they want to have a genuine conversation and hear more about what you do um you know you can lead off with the more appealing elevator pitch but if you know, somebody's just kind of asking you for, because they don't really care, but they're just asking the question. Then right. You can just leave it at, I live in a trailer and I knit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's been really cool to dig into your website. Like I, I know that you've been able to have people like Mindy Kaling wear some of the items that you've put together. So like, how, how did you get into this? I know you said you were sitting at home watching travel videos and Mm -hmm. knitting, but has knitting been something that you've done for a long time? Obviously enough to be really good at it. Well, I learned to knit when I went back to college. I was a music publicist at about the age of 18 and was working some really big country artists and thought I was going to be a music publicist and decided that I didn't like musicians. Now my husband is a musician, so I married one, but uh, (laughs) that's another story. And uh, so when I went back to college, um, a girlfriend of mine, she was like, oh, I want to learn how to knit. And I'd always been crafty, but I, I hadn't really been doing much. And so I was like, yeah, I'll learn how to knit. And we ended up taking a knitting class. I was about, I think, around 21 or 22 years old. And it just, I just, I obviously kind of, you know, got stuck to it and um, got into the knitting. And then that's what helped me survive college. I found that knitting helped me concentrate in class. It helped me focus better. Um, Growing up, I was never allowed to just like sit and watch TV. I had to be playing with Legos or crafting or, you know, beading or stitching or something. And so it was a little bit of a natural thing for me to get into it. I didn't know I was going to get into as heavy as I did. But uh, so through college, I learned to knit and then I ended up just being able to get pretty decent at it and finished college, started teaching. And I actually my first teaching job was a handwork teacher. I taught knitting to kids at a Waldorf uh, inspired school and I loved teaching knitting. That was just something that I really enjoyed doing. And so when school kind of teetered out, I went into private tutoring and then uh, teaching knitting at local yarn shops. And I never really thought that it was going to be a job that I was going to make like real money at. It was just sort of like my, it was basically money that I made to buy yarn with. 
And it just kind of evolved living in Hollywood, being able to be in a place where they, they needed knitters, which is not something I even thought that they needed. Uh, and then I started to sort of get contacts and, and learn uh, how to, how to connect with costume designers. And it just evolves into this sort of thing where I'm like sitting on the couch, watching shows, knitting on these projects that I'm getting paid really well for thinking I can be doing this from anywhere. I don't need to be paying a mortgage and doing this from Los Angeles. Um, because most of the, sh the, most of the filming does end up happening in like, um, Atlanta and Vancouver and things like that. So I'm shipping things out anyways. And it just kind of evolved and it became this, this thing that I realized that I could do from the road and it's worked out really well. As long as I can get to a post office or a FedEx, I'm good. I assume a lot of the people that were in those classes that you were teaching at the time, were they, were they just kind of taking on knitting as a hobby? Yes. Yeah. A lot of retired people or younger people that were wanting to not buy from Target and make their own things. Uh, they were just, yeah, hobby, knitter, hobby knitters for sure. One of the things I think is interesting hearing your story is when I, if I were to think, okay, I'm going to start a knitting business. Well, first of all, I guess backtracking even a little bit more than that, like if and I just learn knitting and getting into it and thinking, okay, how can I make money doing this thing that I enjoy doing while hanging out or whatever? my probably first inclination would be to go to a place like Etsy. But now that I think about it, that's probably a terrible idea because that's where every single person who knits anything tries to go make a living on is Etsy. And you kind of have forged this totally different path versus, you know, going to this crowded marketplace where everyone is kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love Etsy for, for what it is, but as a knitter, um, the, a, a lot of stuff is so underpriced. I mean, you know, I look at a scarf and I'm like, well, the yarn costs $7 and they're selling it for $8. Uh, and so I knew that wasn't my place to go, um, because there are a lot of people doing that. The other thing is that when you do something like that, you have to have a lot of product on, on hand. And, you know, as RVers, we don't have a lot of space. And so having the yarn to make the pieces that, or the, having the finished pieces and having to ship those off, it just, it isn't a, a sort of viable way to do a business in an RV. There's just not space for that much, that too much product. After you were done teaching, how did you find the first um, like person to pay you for something you would knit? Was that something that was like, friend of a friend bought something off of you or did you actually like when did you actually shift from teaching people how to knit to selling your own products it sort of came about I mean the the first sort of wave of what happens is you know you work in a yarn store long enough some somebody's going to come in who doesn't knit and they say my grandma made these really beautiful stockings for my family growing up she's passed away and I would love to have some for my kids now can I hire you to to knit these pieces and um, that was sort of the first start, but it, it, even then there wasn't that, uh, you know, the amount of time it would take to make something versus what you're paid. It wasn't, it wasn't what it needed to be. And so that's kind of where that sort of started, but it wasn't until I found out about the whole Hollywood costume designer industry that I realized that like people, there are people in the higher up businesses that will appreciate and pay for the time and work that you do. And that's where I've kind of found my my little happy place. I love that. And how did you like, how did you start making these relationships? You were living in LA at the time, but I assume it sounds like there was a bit of intentionality with figuring out, okay, 
so people in LA who make movies and TV shows will pay for handcrafted, unique sweaters or whatever, scarves, um, gloves, anything that you can put together knitting wise. But how did you, how did you form like some of those relationships? It was, uh, I went back to my uh, publicist brain and realized that I needed to market myself. And I'm really bad at marketing, selling myself. Like I will talk about how amazing my husband is all day long, but I'm not good at talking about my side of things, which I think is sort of an artist's, that's that's a common thing amongst uh, artists. And um, so a friend had emailed me uh, this posting that he somehow, and I have no idea how he saw this, but saw it on Craigslist for somebody looking for a knitter. And I responded to it and ended up going back and forth talking with this person. And uh, she ended up being somebody who was working with a costume designer for the movie, The Hunger Games. And she and I ended up becoming really good friends. We're still friends to this day. I don't do a lot of work with her. She's a machine knitter and she needed a hand knitter. And that was sort of my eye-opening moment of, wow, there's this need for this in the industry. And so that was sort of what I started looking out for. And then I ended up, and I don't even know how I got on this mailing list, but I ended up getting an email for this like fashionista con thing that was happening in Los Angeles at a hotel. And it was for people who wanted to be stylists. And that's not what I wanted to be. However, there was a panel of four costume designers. And that was one of the panels. There was like, I think a dozen of them during the day. And one of them was four costume designers. And it was $350 to go. And at that time, that was a lot of money. My business didn't have a lot of money. And so I sat there and I looked at it and I thought, do I want to spend $350 to go and possibly meet these four costume designers? And I decided that like, I was going to put my big girl panties on and like put myself out there. And I said, okay, I'm going to pay my $350 and I'm going to get my business card in each of those four costume designers hands. And, uh, so I went and went, sat through all the, all the con, uh, all the, um, panels and stuff. And it was really interesting. And I learned a lot, but when the costume designer one came up, they had this really amazing panel. And when it was done, I went up and introduced myself to each of them and gave them my card. And that's very hard for me to do. That's not something that's in my personality to do that. But I was like, if I'm paying this much money, I'm going to go do it. And one of those costume designers happened to be um, Salvador Perez, who is the costume designer for the Mindy Project. He also happens to be the president of the CDGA, which is the Costume Designers Guild Association. So um, I followed up. In the publicity world, there is a line between bugging a journalist and keeping uh, your, your artist, your client in their sort of in their vision. And so I put on my calendar for every three months to follow up with each of them. And a year later, after following up every three months, uh, Sal, I sent an email and Sal emailed me back immediately and said, hey, I want to talk to you. When are you available? And I said, I, whenever you want. He's like, cool. Can you come down to Burbank to the back lot, uh, you know, on Tuesday or whatever? And I was like, absolutely. I'll be there. And so that was my first big meeting and went down and ended up working with him. And then that became this really amazing relationship. He's an amazing costume designer, a really good guy. And from there, uh, I ended up doing 20 plus, probably closer to 30 pieces for Mindy Kaling for the, for the Mindy project. And then he, he was very kind to always pass my name along whenever anybody was asking him, you know, Hey, I need a knitter. I need this made. And he would pass them along to me. And now my name has sort of just gotten out there 
and I get random calls and emails all the time from people I've never heard of or never worked with before. And they're like, Hey, I was told you could do this. Uh, I need it by Friday. Is that cool? And, uh, so that's kind of become my reputation, which, uh, was, was a wonderful thing. Not certainly anything that I had specifically set down and planned to happen. That's amazing. And so whenever Sal called you in, how does that conversation go? So I'm probably going to ask questions that sound really dumb and novice <laughs> because I don't know anything about the knitting world, but does he just say, hey, we've got these episodes, we need an outfit that's going to look and feel like this, or we need this? How, do, how does that conversation actually go? Because I'm genuinely interested because it's a world I know nothing about. Yeah, it's different with every costume designer based on what they need and what the vision is of them and the director. Um, with Sal, it was I brought a bunch of uh, yarn swatches, which is just all the different colors of yarn. And he originally had wanted cashmere, everything to be cashmere, but he wanted really bright colors. And I said, well, cashmere doesn't dye as deep as merino. Would you be okay with merino? And he's like, well, let me see some swatches. So he said, he told me, he's like, okay. And he gave me a knit skirt and a knit vest that were machine done that weren't, weren't, uh, weren't hand knit or anything. And he wanted me to duplicate them in colors and, um, to, to match that, that particular piece that she had worn. And, um, so I sent him a bunch of swatches. I just went to the store and I packed, I picked up like the brightest and he wanted like clashy colors. He's like, I want like oranges and blues and purples and yellows. And, um, and so I knit up about seven or eight swatches and I sent them over to him and he called me up and he's like, love them. I want a skirt and vest and swatch two. I want a skirt and swatch three and a vest and swatch four. And he just like put in this order for six pieces, um, and so then I had to make, uh, these, these pieces according to the size of these garments that he sent me home with. So I was just sort of using it as a template to match the sizing. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. And w again, silly question for somebody who's never been in the space, but mm -hmm. how, what's, what is the difference between a machine made product and a hand one? Obviously it's made from hand, but is it a huge thing that you can notice? Like when you look at a piece, can you tell that? it's a machine made piece versus a handmade piece? Um, a lot of knitters can tell uh, for sure, but the general public won't know. But the advantage is that he can have very specific colors. Like he'll tell me, he'll send me, he'll send me a picture of like a swatch of fabric. And he's like, we're making her a blouse out of this. I need something to match it. And so I can go and pick out very specific colors and then specific design shapes and patterns install that. To, to be what he wants to match that particular um, blouse. And so like, for example, he had a, um, a blouse material that, uh, that had this, uh, that was black with red hearts. And he wanted a vest that was red with a big black heart on it. And so he, you know, you, a machine knit, yeah, you can get that machine made, but you can't get it to be specifically the color, the size and the, the pattern that you want. And so um, on that show, part of her character is being very trendy clothes wise. Like she's always got, you know, Louis Vuitton and Gucci and all that. And, um, and so for her to have these custom pieces that nobody else, you can't get off the rack was kind of part of what the character was about. How cool is it to see something that you knit on somebody like Mindy Kaling on, on the show? Do you remember watching like the first piece that you ever made on a show? I do. It was a blue and orange uh, vest and skirt. And I will tell you, to, to be completely honest, it makes me incredibly nervous. Really? Uh, when I know something's going to be in something, it makes me very nervous. I don't know why. Um, I, it's, it's a, I guess it's a nervous excitement. 
but um, I, I don't know. It, it is a very strange thing to, I was like texting my parents. I was using their Hulu account and I'm like, you got to go to episode so-and-so uh, at this time that those are my pieces. And that was the first time. Um, but it's a nervous excitement. It's definitely one of those things where I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. But also, oh, I should have made that neck a little bit larger. I should have brought that armhole. Like, you know, I just am seeing the things that I would probably change if I, if I could, but that's not the reality of it. (laughs) (laughs) What a great lesson though, in that you were already making these pieces. So, I mean, people were already coming to you, whether it was Mm -hmm. at a store or in a class to work on like a piece or something like that. And the takeaway for me in hearing that is that you can do the same amount of work, but when there's a different level of opportunity that you go out and get, you paying $350 to get yourself in front of the right person and then spend a year following up every few months, literally like that, that one thing led to you putting in ultimately the same work that you would have done anyway in putting knitting pieces together, but just at a totally different level and finding the people who value that. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that there definitely needs to be good value. And while knitting is something that a lot of people do, I will say that like my deadlines are very stressful. Um, I'm a very fast knitter and um, I have to be very precise. And so um, I think it was, I guess it was a week or two ago, I got a phone call that they needed two sweaters and I had two days to do it. And that is not something that is very realistic for very, a lot of people. And so, yes, I I knit and yes, I knit for really good value. However, it is a very high stress and I have to be able to deliver. And so it's one of those things that I think that might be also what makes me nervous is just like that, that, I mean, I've pulled all nighters so many times because they're like, yeah, we need a second one for the stunt double in like half the time that you got to to do the first one. Um, And so it it is stress, but uh, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Is it rare that somebody ever reaches out and you just straight up tell them I can't get it done in that period of time? Does that happen? Very rare, um, because what sort of ends up happening is they think they need it by Friday, but oh, we're not shooting it until the following Thursday. And so there's sometimes a little bit of a grace period. I don't ever accept anything that I know can't be done. Uh, like for the sweaters where I needed to do two, um, I told her, I said, it needs to be super bulky yarn and it needs to be a very boxy shape. Like there's, there's no time to do any kind of shaping or um, it, it can't be a thinner yarn. And she's like, that's perfect. That's totally fine. So uh, it, is, it is very important for me to know how long things take, um, what my skill level is to be able to do that. And then I also have to be very clear about saying, once I start, if there's any alterations, it could possibly cancel out me being able to get this done uh, by your deadline. So it kind of gives them a little bit of, okay, no alterations, because <laughs> that's the worst. How has it been transitioning to being on the road? Does it has it made it harder, easier, equipment wise and space wise in the RV? Um, the only sort of situation that I sort of encounter is, especially if I'm working on sort of a longer uh, project, project that doesn't uh, isn't necessarily on a big deadline. Uh, space for, I mean, I have yarn kind of stuffed in every little nook and cranny that we can put it into, um, but. It's really the only thing that's different is I get to experience a lot of different FedEx and post offices all over the country. Uh, As long as I can get to those. um, Oh, also having things shipped to me. 
sometimes I have to have like swatches or if I have to recreate a piece, um, I have to have those physical pieces shipped to me. Uh, luckily there is always the budget for them to be able to overnight it. So it's not like I'm having to wait in a place for four or five days for something to show up. But if I'm boondocking or something like that, I have to be able to figure out where I can have that shipped to. And that's been a little bit of a, a um, obstacle, but it, with technology nowadays and texting and all that stuff, I do so much through sending pictures over text back and forth with the costume designers rather than having to uh, physically mail things out all the time to have it checked. Uh, so yeah, it's just a, it's just a matter of being able to receive things, ship things and uh, have a couch to sit on. That's, <laughs> that's about it. When, when you were first learning how to knit, uh, did you think that it would be feasible to have a full-time business doing this? Oh, no, this was not something I ever planned or thought would be like a career path for me. Definitely not. In fact, I had to do I just shipped off yesterday. Um, I had to do some um, like ugly Christmas sweaters where I didn't actually knit the pieces. I did the like the designing on top of them with like felt and ribbon and things like that. And I was texting with my parents and I was like, little did you know, all of those those hours spent taking me to craft store as a child and buying me all these crafty things like would eventually turn into a career. And they were like, Oh yeah, like this is amazing. We love it. My mom and I used to go to craft stores all the time. And uh, I, I just never even pictured this being a career path. Now I will say that because our cost of living is so much lower, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not making a crap ton of money where I'm out, you know, flying first class and stuff. But because our cost of living is so much lower, I can, we can afford for me to take these very sporadic jobs that um, while they do pay well, they are very, there's often far and few in between. Like during the, the COVID, I actually ended up having a lot of work, but it wasn't with costume designers. It was with um, blogs and things like that. It is, I'll go months without hearing anything and getting a paycheck. And then all of a sudden I'll have like four jobs in a row. Wow. And is there like a, is it diverse? Let me ask this question again. Is there a large diversity of what different TV shows and movies and projects are willing to pay? Or is there kind of like a standard amount that they pay per hour? How does how did they typically structure those? And is it kind of similar across the industry? Or is it pretty diverse? It's it's very much depending on the production budget. Um, some production budgets are obviously much bigger than others. Uh, they're generally they'll ask me how you know what what I'm paid, and I have an hourly rate and a rush hourly rate rate, and so if it's under two weeks. I I, I charge more, um, and I will estimate to them. I'll say, okay, well that sweater is going to take you know twenty to thirty hours. And this is my hourly rate. It's less than two weeks. So it's my rush hourly rate and then plus materials. And so I give them a rough estimate. I say, you know, it'll cost between this much and this much. And then they will either say, okay, that's great. Or they'll come back and say, you know, well, this is our budget. Can we pay you this amount of money? And I have to decide whether or not that's okay with me or not. And usually I've been very lucky to not have a lot of really heavy overlapping jobs. And so it's like, well, I'd rather be paid some and be working than, um, you know, maybe it's a couple hundred dollars less than what I would normally charge, but then it's a relationship with a new costume designer and they're going to come back. And so I just have to decide 
is that amount of money worth it for me to do this piece, knowing what's involved in this piece? Because they often don't know what's involved, uh, you know, the amount of time and, and going out and scouting out yarn. You know, sometimes they're like, they want a very specific color or they want a very specific texture. And I have to physically go out to yarn stores or I have to order a bunch of stuff to have it shipped. And, and that takes time. Uh, so it is always dependent on their budget. And then um, I'm just very fair and very upfront with the costumes designers working with them on, on price and um, always come to an agreement before, before I start the project. And I just have to be okay with it. There are times where I've accepted a project that ended up being more work than I had sort of expected. And I have a little bit of cursing at my knitting going, uh, I should be getting paid more, but that's what I accepted. That's what I agreed to. And I, I have to uh, adhere to that. Yeah, I know that makes sense. If if I was if I was producing a TV show and I needed four sweaters, uh, how would like how would that conversation go with you? Do you kind of have to figure out what how many colors are going into the sweater? I know we're getting really into the weeds. It's just this is a world I don't know much about, and it, it, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's um. A lot of times they'll say, okay, so I've got a middle-aged woman who's going to be sort of a, an ant figure. She's a little bit heavier, but I don't have any, I don't have an actor cast yet. So I don't have sizing for you. And so it's like, well, I can't start until I have a size. And so, um, usually what ends up happening is they will give me, um, measurements and we just kind of pray that those are going to work because it hasn't always uh, casting, especially if it's for a commercial. Now, if it's for a movie or a TV show or something like that, then it's obviously already casted. But um, if it's if it's for a commercial, it, it they generally don't cast until sort of close to the last minute. And so it's just a matter of working with the costume designer. And then what ends up happening, I swear this happens more often than not, and this just happened on the sweaters I just shipped is I'll ship them off and I will be done and I will be relieved. And then I get a call on a Sunday morning saying, we need a second one uh, for a stunt double. <laughs> and then it's back to work. So um, it is always dependent on the production, also the organization. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a show now that's huge. I'm under a really tight NDA, but when I'm able to announce it, you're going to freak out. Um, but you know, they are, they are filming for months and months and months and they have been cast for months and months and months. And so, um, there's more lead time on things like that. And so I have more, uh, more time to really kind of get things exactly as they want it color wise, um, shape wise and things like that. Um, but if it's a commercial and they're shoot, shooting next week, it is just a matter of, well, they're going to be probably a size medium. So go for it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Is there a range, it, you know, so like thinking of like, say, just picking sweater, because I feel like that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of knitting mm -hmm. something. When you think of a sweat, like the average sweater for a TV show uh, from like the low to high end, is there a number that the at like the average TV show or production is willing to pay for like that sweater? If you don't want to share, that's fine. I'm just curious. No, no. Um, it's funny because I get asked, uh, oh, we need, we need a sweater. How much will that cost? And it's like, okay, well, here comes a, a flurry of questions because so many things go into what that costs. If it's a thin weight versus a thick weight, that is a huge time factor. And so that is a huge difference. Um, is it in a, a synthetic yarn versus do they want a natural fiber? That is a huge cost difference. Is it a simple shape or is it a heavily cabled piece or with a big motif on it? 
that is a huge cost difference. Is it a size two or a size 14? There's so many things that alter the, um, the, the, price of what something's going to cost. And so when I sort of hear what their production budget is, like, you know, the sweaters that were broke bulky, I said, um, it has to be bulky because there's just not enough time to do to do uh, smaller weight sweaters. And they're like, that's fine. And the production budget wasn't as big. So um, I, I have been paid anywhere from about $300 to about $1,400 for a sweater. Yeah, and I'm sure the shows are happy to pay it for unique articles of clothing because I would think the fancier the clothing gets when it comes to productions, you know, like they, a lot of them I'm sure go out to get those made. So that's really cool. That's amazing that you've been able to do that. So getting kind of transitioning the conversation a little bit to running this business on the road, how has that shift? It sounds like it's kind of shifted the things that make you most excited because you're kind of thinking about, other areas now, photography and, and content mm-hmm. and things like that. So kind of how has being on the road changed how you see growing your business? Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I didn't want to happen is I didn't want to go, okay, let's great, let's hit the road. And then for me to be stuck in the RV for day after day after day, week after week working. And it's like, we're parked in this really beautiful place and I can't even go out and hike because I've got this deadline I've got to meet. Um, And so I've definitely taken a little bit of a step back with, I used to be very proactive and going out and making connections, you know, sending, sending Instagram messages and sending emails and costume designers. Hey, this is who I am. Um, I, I, I don't do that anymore. Um, because I really want to have time to go and explore these places that we're visiting. Um, It's one thing to take a vacation and go somewhere and leave your work at home and enjoy your vacation. But it's another thing when you're on the road. Yeah, you're in this really cool place, but you might have to work. Um, And so I've decided that I will do any projects that excite me that come to me um, that I'm available to do. I'm not seeking it anymore. But I also am really getting into the photography and I want to do more content because people are asking about, oh, yeah, I heard about that yarn store in that town. What was it like? And so now I'm taking pictures in yarn shops and interviewing yarn shop owners um, and going to fiber farms, you know, going to alpaca farms and sheep farms and things like that and sort of experiencing that stuff. And I want to sort of bring in that travel experience uh, and all those things that we get to see on the road. And if I'm sitting in the RV, working on a sweater, I don't get to go out and experience that stuff. So that's definitely been the big transition is, is realizing that I don't want to make all of my money from stitching, but also from um, starting to add content to my website, which is definitely why I'm doing the, the website relaunch and sort of brand relaunch to, to bring all that in. I love that. I, and in my head, I'm just thinking, I know you have NDAs for the projects that you work on at any given time, I'm sure. But to be able to see a photo of you knitting or the start or the process of it and then see the finished product. And then like to see, I'm just thinking of Instagram carousel to see that photo in whatever show or production is taking place, whether it's commercial, like that would be really, really cool to be able to have that kind of story of, Hey, this is something I worked on. Uh, here's the start of it. Here is the middle piece. And here was it, you know, being used and something like that. Like, that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely the the direction I sort of want it to go. But yeah, I, I generally can't post anything until the, the show is aired and I get the clear. But um, yeah, I do need to be better. You know, that's another thing is, is it, it's, it's 
seems like such a glamorous job to travel and knit, but at the end of the day, like the glamour really is me in my pajamas and like balls of yarn and like lunch sitting next to me as I'm sort of picking through it and knitting. So uh, I do need to be better about, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll walk around an aquarium with my yarn hanging off my back, off my hip, and I'll be knitting, working on a piece, but not every project is portable like that. But yeah, that is sort of the direction I want to go is sort of this idea of, yeah, I worked on this really cool piece for this amazing movie. And here's me and, you know, and uh, the Grand Tetons uh, working on it. That, that is sort of the idea of what I want to go to. I love it. That's awesome. If somebody's listening to this, and they have something that maybe feels like a hobby or people told them it was a hobby, but they have an interest and in, in just kind of think in the back of their mind, if I could do this every day, that'd be amazing. What, what would you share with them? And not everything's going to translate, but what do you mm-hmm. feel like you have learned going through this process from taking something to from a hobby to your career? Um, I would say that it does change your, um, your feelings towards that craft. Um, you know, knitting used to be very relaxing and used to be my way of focus. And it was something I really enjoyed and I still very much enjoy it, but it has taken on a new stress level with deadlines. Um, so be, you, you have to be okay with, uh, your hobby no longer being your hobby because it it isn't a hobby anymore. Uh, but if it's something that you love and you're very passionate about, make sure you put worth on it. Don't, don't undercut your, yourself on Etsy and things like that. Um, because I would rather knit one blanket for somebody who really appreciates it and is going to pay, you know, four or $500 what it's actually worth than knit 12 blankets for $20. Um, and so if you have a hobby that you absolutely love and you're like, I could definitely take this somewhere and, and don't go the traditional route. Etsy does seem like the easy thing, but don't go the traditional route. Um, definitely sort of look at other ways. Uh, there's a lot of collaborations that you can do with, like, let's say that you're, um, you love beading, uh, do a lot of beading and that's sort of your, your, um, on the road hobby. Um, look at, you know, working with a company like Fire Mountain Gems, which is a huge beading company about doing designs for them or, um, creating pieces for, for their catalog and things like that. Like you don't have to go the traditional route of just selling to the general public, because I will tell you the general public in general, does not pay what um, crafters and artists uh, actually put into things. I think that's great advice. We're always, a lot of times you end up in a race to the bottom in some of these areas where Mm -hmm. you end up doing the same work and getting paid way less than just finding the right people who are going to value what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And finding a niche is super important. You know, if you, if you like soap making, if you do soap making, I don't know if you can do that on the road, but (laughs) I don't know what that involves, but let's say you do soap making. Rather than just being a soap maker, get a very specific niche. Um, let, let's say that you love, you love, I mean, you know, if you're in an RV, you love to travel. Maybe you want to do soap that is in the shape of little trailers and little RVs. That is a very specific niche where an RVer who wants, you know, beautiful soaps for their, their bathroom uh, are going to seek out that very specific thing. And so by by having, rather than just being a general soap maker, because there's a lot of those, have something that tie your other passion into it. Maybe you love photography and you want to have like camera shaped soap molds. Things like that is definitely a really great way to narrow down and get a more streamlined niche where you're not competing for everybody who's a soap maker. 
That totally makes sense. Uh, just a couple more questions, Chris, that I wanted to go to kind of go through kind of rapid sure. fire real quick. Uh, okay. What has been your favorite campsite that you stayed in since you guys hit the road last year? Camps. Um, we boondocked outside of Zion National Park, and there was this big ravine behind us, and it was beautiful. It was like 108 degrees outside, so we had to use the generator, which we'd never done before, um, so that was kind of miserable. But it was just so like stunningly beautiful, the sunsets, and there was nobody else around us. Um, so just outside of Zion on the uh, Spring Springvale side. Awesome. And what do you... Have you, are you a big reader? Do you read books at all? You know, I used to do nothing but read and then I got into knitting, but I do still, yeah, I do still enjoy reading. Has there been a favorite book that you've read this year? Well, what's funny is I actually hadn't read in a long time. And then when I sort of COVID sort of required me to lay back and not be doing so much work, I got back into reading and this is like, I generally like nonfiction. I love things about like true crime and biographies and stuff. But um, I got into the trashy vampire novels. The I think it's Charlene Harris. What what basically True Blood? The the books that True Blood was based off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been reading those, just trashy vampire novels. Nice. I've never heard of that. Have you um, heard of True Blood, the HBO show? Yes, I've heard of it. I've yeah, never seen yeah, it. it's the books that those are based off of. Gotcha. Cool. And just kind of a macro high level uh, question, but what do you feel has been your biggest lesson from 2020? If you were sitting down at the end of the year, kind of writing down, yeah, these were like lessons I feel I learned this year. What would one of those be? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is I have really learned this year, specifically this year, to appreciate how lucky I am to have a job that is a solo job. And I never, I, I, I miss my knitting group. I miss my knitting community, but because of what's happened in this year, I, I, I never really fully appreciated how lucky I was to have a job that was just me and that the success and the failure is on me. And that, um, you know, if I had to go to an office and that office got shut down or if I was a, a, um, a waiter or something like that, and that got, uh, closed up, I I never fully appreciated how lucky I am to have a job that uh, is, is uh, 100% me, which is good and bad, but I I'm really appreciating it this year. That makes total sense. Chris, if there's a good place uh, to connect with you online, where would that be? Yeah. So my Instagram is Nitsy Nits, K-N-I-T-S-Y, K-N-I-T-S. And then my brand new launched website is explore with Nitsy. I love it. Well, Krista, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. And I'm excited to hear some more fun updates of different pieces you put together for shows when you can talk about them. (laughs) I cannot wait to be able to announce this new one. It's just like, it's, it's one of those shows that I actually watch. And so I, uh, you know, I did a sweater for the the latest Annabelle movie, the coming home or comes home or whatever. I don't like horror movies, but I had to watch the movie just to see my piece in it. And then as soon as my piece was done, I I couldn't watch anymore. (laughs) So this is a show that I actually watch and we watch religiously. So I'm very excited when when I am able to announce this and uh, I definitely will. So check me out and I'll I'll be sure and it'll be all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks, Trista. Thanks so much for having me. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Krista. If you want to check her out, go hit her up on Instagram at Nitsy Nits. 
That is K-N-I-T-S-Y, K-N-I-T-S, Knitsy Knits. And you can get her knitting patterns at knitsyknits.com. Thank you guys again for listening to today's episode. I hope you have an amazing end of your 2020, which is when I'm recording today's episode. I'll see you next time on the RV Entrepreneur Podcast. <laughs>